Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of the Main Polis Podcast. And for the literally hundreds of you that have been digging the show, sorry it took this long for me to get something out. Normally, I wouldn't even bother to give an explanation, but the show has some fans now, and I feel somewhat obligated to explain myself. So, in the last episode, I finished covering some of the private business interests around the New England Clean Energy Connect project, and left off saying that I'd be going into Hydro-Quebec next, and as I was finishing that one up, I thought I could pump something quick out I had come across, but then that turned into something bigger. And I didn't realize how big it spiraled till I was well sunk into it, and it already convinced myself that I wanted to put this out before the final NECEC episode. Combine that with, at this point, this is still just a passion project, so I can afford tops a couple hours a day to try to make this thing fly. And so how I spend those two to three hours are highly prioritized between researching, writing, and recording, updating the website, and trying to publish an article here and there, that time gets eaten up pretty quick. So NECEC part three postponed. I'm not sure I should even bother putting an ETA. Let's say late August. Instead, I wanna go over some base knowledge that will help set the stage for at least a couple of future episodes I've already started planning. So today, I'm gonna try and do basically a systems analysis on Maine's election process at the municipal level. I'm using Maine Statute Title 21A. It's a 296-page document that contains everything governing Maine's election process, whether it be the clean election regulations, uh, rank choice voting rules, how the nomination process works, term limit rules, the Maine Clean Election Act, all of it and more can be found under Maine Statute Title 21A. Uh, I'm going to cover who the players are and what their roles are within Maine's election process, and I'll also give extra attention to things that things that stick out to me as potentially problematic, things that could potentially allow ethically questionable behavior or even outright fraud. This is going to get a little nerdy, maybe even a little dry at times, but hang in there with me because we do end up with a few gems by the end of this. Now, through Title 21A, the legislature created a few different roles within the municipal level, and the number of people filling those roles can vary depending on the size of the municipality. But regardless of its size, at the center of it all, the one role that all the other municipality roles are connected to is the municipal clerk. If you're in a town, it's your town clerk. In a city, it's a city clerk. And when the legislature is talking about both at the same time, it's a municipal clerk or simply clerk. And much like the legislation, I'll be using those last two synonymously. So a municipal clerk is the one dealing with death and uh, birth certificates, marriage licenses, a lot of public record stuff. And in addition to whatever else the municipality requires, the state has also designated municipal clerks as the election supervisor for the respective city or town. The legislature requires that this person get training from a Secretary of State-approved course on the rules, regulations, and procedures required of them for a main election. The legislature requires this training to be biennial, and they leave it to the municipality if they want to pay for additional election training for their clerk beyond that. And not every city or town goes through the same process for hiring their municipal clerk. 
but it usually falls to the city or town manager to interview and hire for that position. I think some places have some sort of term limit in place, but that would depend on the specific rules of each municipality's charter. Some places require the candidate get approved by the town or city council, but some just leave it to the town or city manager to deal with. In some places, it's apparently an elected position, but that's sort of the general idea. And a municipal clerk's role as the municipality's election supervisor includes quite a few different responsibilities. First off, the Secretary of State offers a ballot tabulator to any municipality with more than a thousand registered voters. And so if your municipality is using a ballot tabulator, which out of some 486 municipalities, 309 were using DS-200 tabulators in the last presidential election, so pretty likely, then it's the municipal clerk that's responsible for keeping that thing safe and secure. The legislature's language in Title 21A is pretty clear that those are the people responsible for these things when they're not being used for an election. It has to be kept in a dry location, and if anything bad happens to it, then the municipality is responsible for paying to either repair or replace it. Come time to take it out for an election, it's the municipal clerk's responsibility to make sure it's in proper working order. And basically how that's done is that they mark a few test ballots, run them through the tabulator, and make sure the results that the tabulator prints out matches what was actually put in. And if it doesn't match, then the municipal clerk, according to the legislature, is responsible for fixing it. And the information on how to even go about doing that, that's all information that comes from the Secretary of State's office. And actually, saying that the municipal clerks are testing the tabulators is an understatement, because it's not just testing. They're responsible for programming that thing. Or at least uploading the programming for that thing via a USB drive provided by the Secretary of State's office. A USB drive that, because of political divisions from U.S. House districts, state House and Senate districts, plus any local municipal races or referendums, those USB drives have been programmed by the Secretary of State's office to read and count ballots for specific polling stations. So in cities and towns with more than one polling station, clerks will be responsible for multiple USB drives because the ballots may not be the same, even though they're in the same municipality. And that step-by-step -step process of physically taking that USB drive that the Secretary of State programs and sends to the municipality, plugging it into the correct tabulator, making sure that any required software updates are taken care of, is the responsibility of the municipal clerk. Some of the other jobs they're responsible for are transporting equipment, ballot boxes, unopened boxes of ballots. All that stuff needs to be transported to the polling stations. If the municipality is using tabulators, then they're transporting them as well, along with anything the tabulator requires. The paper rolls that it uses to print the results, the USB drive that controls the tabulator, the specially designed ballot box the tabulator is attached to, they're responsible for bringing all those things and any other equipment necessary for a main election. The voting booths, pens and markers, the tables, getting all that stuff together and knowing where and how to set it up. They're the ones dealing with the municipality's absentee voter process. They're also dealing with regulations on poll watchers, on people collecting signatures at the polls, and anyone else requesting to be present on election day. People doing exit polls is another example. 
their point of contact leading up to the election will be the municipal clerk. Now, I say leading up to the election because when they show up on the day of the election, their point of contact changes from the municipal clerk to the warden. And how someone becomes a warden depends, first off, if they live in a town or a city, because the legislature set up different rules for each. In a city, the legislature has left the specific guidelines on hiring a warden and a ward clerk up to the city. So every city in Maine should have a section in their charter somewhere describing the position of both a warden and a ward clerk. But a ward clerk is basically just a sidekick or extra set of hands for the warden. And near as I can tell is allowed to do anything a warden does. They're just under the supervision of the actual warden. Also, if the warden is suddenly unable to do their job or the position is suddenly vacant, the legislature allows for the ward clerk to step in. Now for towns, the legislature specifically says that the municipal clerk shall appoint a warden and may appoint one or more deputy wardens to assist in their duties on election day. The town's municipal officers, so like the town's selectmen, for example, would still have to basically sign off on it, which makes sense, and the state wants the municipalities to pay these people out of the municipal budget. Now, just to add another layer here, the legislature has also written the law so that in the towns, once the municipal clerk has sworn in the warden, another municipal clerk task, once they've sworn in the warden, the warden can then turn around and swear in the municipal clerk to be their deputy warden. And actually, it's written specifically so that a municipal clerk could simply be the person serving as warden if that's what a town wanted to do. Deputy wardens seem to have a similar function as, as a city's warden clerk, uh, basically an extra set of hands for the warden, and someone that can fill in as a warden if necessary. And I'll also just add here, as I'm going through and explaining different things a warden does, know that it's either a warden doing it, or it's either a deputy warden or a ward clerk under the supervision of a warden. But yeah, for towns, the legislature basically requires the municipal clerk to deal with finding a warden and a deputy wardens too if the town feels like they're needed. Okay, so what else does a warden do? Well, there's a few different tasks expected of the warden, but essentially they're responsible for making sure all of the state's election laws are being followed on election day. And that includes the ability to instruct police officers to have someone removed that's violating those rules. But most of the stuff is procedural. Like, for example, sometime prior to the election, I don't think it actually specifies that it's the morning of or the day before, but at some point prior to the election, the blank ballots that the municipal clerk received from the Secretary of State's office which is another municipal clerk responsibility, receiving blank ballots from the Secretary of State's office and then keeping them secure until the election. Those blank ballots are turned over to the warden and the warden is the one that actually like breaks the seal on the packages the ballots come in. And the legislature stipulates that can't happen until at least two hours from when the polls open. So assuming the polls open at 8 a.m., they shouldn't be breaking those seals until sometime after 6 a.m. And that's something that the public is allowed to go watch, to see the warden break those seals and pull out fresh, unmarked ballots. 
The other thing the warden gets from the municipal clerk around this time are all the completed absentee ballots along with the actual ballot box, the thing that the ballots we dropped into all day. Up until that point, the absentee ballots and the actual ballot box were under the care and control of the municipal clerk. And in towns that are using tabulators, it's the same idea. The warden basically receives the thing from the clerk along with the attached ballot box and the key to open it. So the warden gets control of that. And that's another thing the public is allowed to go see. Watching the warden open the ballot box before the polls open. And this is true for the towns that do hand counts too. The public can go watch their warden unlock the ballot box and inspect it, ensuring that it's empty. Alright, so after the warden inspects the ballot box, they lock it back up, and then, according to the rules set out by the legislature, after locking the ballot box back up, the warden then has to, quote, deliver the key to the ward clerk, who shall keep it until the polls are closed. Ward clerks, as you hopefully will recall, are specific to cities. So what does that mean for town wardens? There is no mention of having to turn the ballot box key over to a deputy warden, or anyone else for that matter. And I didn't see anything that explained why the legislature would want this to happen, but my guess is that cities and towns that have more than one polling station, the warden can't be everywhere at once. So they're leaving ward clerks in full control of a polling station. That's why they need the key, because they're effectively going to be the warden for that particular polling station. Another important role is that of the registrar. Every municipality in Maine has one. This is a position that is appointed by the municipal officers. So a town select persons, city council members, it's their job to appoint a registrar of voters. And at least once every couple years, the registrar is required to attend a Secretary of State approved training seminar. The registrar serves a two year term that begins on January 1st of every odd year and I'm not seeing anything that would limit the number of terms a registrar can serve. When there is a vacancy, whether it's because of a new term or the registrar stepped down for some reason, the municipality has 10 days to pick a new registrar and notify the Secretary of State's office of their pick. And the legislature set it up so that if after 15 days, the Secretary of State's office receives no notification from the municipality on their pick, the legislature set it up so that the municipal clerk is then required to appoint someone. And they also set it up so that the municipal clerk can appoint themselves as registrar. And even if they don't appoint themselves as registrar, whomever is appointed registrar is required to appoint the clerk as deputy registrar, which basically just allows the clerk to do registrar stuff as necessary. And what is registrar stuff exactly? Well, it mostly involves keeping the municipality's registered voter list along with the statewide central voter registration system up to date. The registered voter list contains the name, residence, party enrollment status, electoral districts, voter status, active or inactive, their voter record number, and any special designations, serving or employed overseas, or if they're from a township that must vote in a nearby municipality. The registered voter list has that for every registered voter in the municipality. Uh, this list is what a municipality is required to use for elections. And then the central voter registration system 
is a statewide database with a file on every single registered voter in the state of Maine. It has everything the municipality's registered voter list has, plus some extra stuff. And there are a few different ways for a registrar to keep these up to date. The biggest, probably best recognized, would be the voter registration cards. Or technically, they're considered applications. But they look like green index cards, and any town or city hall will have them available. It asks for a name, a physical address, and a signature. It also asks if they want to enroll in a political party, and if so, which one? And it's a registrar's job to verify that the person trying to register is who they say they are. So they have to see some sort of state ID or a birth certificate, signed social security card. They'll even accept like a bill or a letter from DHHS, something official that has your name and residential address. Additionally, if a voter wants to change their party affiliation, they'll have to go refill out one of these same cards to make that change. Also, if the voter moves across town or has a name change, then, well, ideally the voter will go and refill out one of those cards with new information. But if they don't, and the registrar either figures it out or is told by the Secretary of State, then the registrar has the ability to mail out a change of address confirmation form along with a prepaid return envelope. Now, if it's just across town, then the registrar will actually send the form to the new address. If they move to a different municipality, then they'll send it to the old address with the forwarding instructions. And in addition to the form and a return envelope, they'll also include instructions on how and where to register to vote in their new home. And yeah, in addition to those green index cards voters are filling out as necessary, other ways registrars keep track of things is by watching for wedding announcements or even just recently filed marriage licenses. They're also keeping an eye on the obituaries in case voters need to be <clears throat> removed. They've also got access to a number of statewide databases that I hadn't realized before. Like the DMV, for example. Lists compiled by DHHS, the State Vital Records Database. They're able to check those lists and see if names or addresses need to be changed because of marriages or divorces, or because they moved across town, across the state, or even across the country. Now, ideally, the voter will respond to the registrar's notification, and the registrar will be able to update the municipality's registered voter list, as well as the central voter registration system. But if they don't respond to the notification the registrar sends, then the voter's registration isn't necessarily canceled, at least not right away, they'll be designated as inactive. And then, if two general elections go by and that inactive voter hasn't voted in that time, the registrar has to cancel their registration. But if they do end up voting during that time, then they'll be put back on the active list. Okay, now, like I mentioned above, the municipal voter list that's kept specifically for use on election day. They're not allowed to use the statewide central voter registration system to pull together a registered voter list for election day. It's kept separate. So then, what is the central voter registration system used for? Well, that depends who's asking to see it. Because this isn't something that you can just go online and search. You'd have to make a formal request to either the Secretary of State's office, if it's from the voter registration system, or, if they just want specific municipality data, then a request can usually be made directly with their registrar. 
Section 196 sets up a few different categories of who can request voter data from either a municipality's registrar or from the Secretary of State, and depending on who it is, will decide how much information they're permitted to see. So, updating the voter list and central voter registration system isn't the only responsibility of the registrar here. It also requires, upon request, pulling together reports and data sets. And so, what sort of data can they pull? Well, if you're a registered Maine voter, you can request a copy of your complete voter file that the central voter registration system has on you from either the Secretary of State or your municipality's registrar. Now, if you're just some individual, you're not tied to a political party or any other group, just some geek off the street curious about something within that statewide registered voter system, then you'll have to file a request with the Secretary of State's office. It doesn't cost anything, but the information that individuals can see is limited. They can request uh, lists showing either a voter's first or last name, their date of birth, either when they registered to vote or the last time their registration was updated. So maybe a name change or different address in the same municipality, for example. Changing your party enrollment status would be another example. Uh, they'd also be able to see which voters were active and which were inactive, as well as the last election they voted in. If they have a special designation, which usually means they're either serving or are employed overseas, so are voting with a federal absentee ballot, or they live in a township, so have to vote in a neighboring municipality. They also get to see if they're in the first or second congressional district and the county the voter belongs to. Uh, that's it, though. That's the extent of the information available to individuals requesting data from the Secretary of State. And actually, even though this section specifically says that an individual has to go to the Secretary of State to request this, it also says that if what the person wants doesn't include anything that would ID the voter, so no names or birthdays, it specifically says no addresses or voter ID numbers, which individuals aren't allowed to see anyway, but yeah, if a person just wants statistical data, so no personal voter information, then that's something they, that either the Secretary of State or a registrar can pull together free of charge. Now, government and quasi-governmental agencies, they can file requests with the Secretary of State's office for this data free of charge too. Think government agencies or committees doing policy research, looking at voter turnout and thinking of ways to encourage more participation. And the data that they have access to, they get a bit more access than if you were just some individual. In addition to date of birth, active or inactive status, along with when they registered to vote or last updated their registration, and any of those special designations I mentioned, government and quasi-governmental agencies also have access to the voter's first and last name, so not just one or the other, and they also get to see all the electoral districts the voter belongs to. So not just their U.S. House and County districts, but also by their State Senate and House districts, by their Municipal District, right down to the voting district for, for municipalities that have more than one. Government and quasi-governmental agencies would also get access to the voters' residential and mailing addresses, and their voter record number. More things an individual can't get. The database is also available to police needing anything for ongoing police work, an investigation or what have you, 
A written request will get them full access to anything they want. Similarly, the federal and state courts can also make requests free of charge to the Secretary of State, but their access is a bit more limited to just voter registration information, name, address, date of birth, and apparently they'll use those records for jury selection purposes. Alright, next up are political parties. And what political parties can get shows up twice in this section. One is free of charge, and the other is not. Now, at the state level, the Secretary of State provides the state-level committee of each political party, free of charge, a statewide list of registered voters. Title 21A refers to this as a caucus list. And then, at the local level, the registrar, upon request, and only once per two-year election cycle, will provide a municipal caucus list to any municipal-level political party committee. Now, in addition to a municipal caucus list, registrars are also able to provide a municipal-level party committee certain voter record information on their municipality's registered voters. Specifically, and upon request, the registrar will provide a municipal-level party committee the full name, residence and mailing address, their current party enrollment status, electoral districts, voter status, voter record number, and any of those special designations of every registered voter in their municipality, and again, that's free of charge. The second option available to political parties is also open to, quote, an individual who has been elected or appointed to and is currently serving in a municipal county, state, or federal office. So U.S. senators, governors, state legislatures, city mayors, town council members, even county sheriffs, would all fall under that banner. And that can be filed with either the Secretary of State or a local municipal registrar, if that's all they need. And regardless of who gets it, the cost is the same. It's a dollar for the first page and 25 cents after that, plus shipping fees. Now, to get that same data in electronic form, the pricing sheet for that is a bit more telling. It's broken up into 14 different price brackets based on how many voter records they'd want to purchase. And I'll go over the cheapest, middle, and highest price brackets just to get an idea of what it's about. So, for 11 bucks, either the Secretary of State or a local registrar can get them between 1 and 1,000 voter records. $220 will get you between 75,000 and one up to 100,000 voter records. And if they want the whole thing, 900,000 and one or more voter records, 2,200 bucks. 2,200 bucks will get you the voter record of every registered voter in the state. And because these lists are constantly being updated by registrars all over the state, this section also permits the party paying for those records Regardless of how many records they actually purchase, that price, it includes monthly updates for a year. So, what are they paying for? What sort of info comes in a voter's record that they're not getting with a caucus list? Well, in addition to the basics, so your first and last name, your date of birth, something that's not permitted for the caucus list, both your residence and mailing addresses, your electoral districts, your party enrollment status, whether you're on the active or inactive voter list, your voter record number, and any special designations. In addition to all that, they also get voting history. 
So not only can they see the last election you voted in, they can see every election you voted in. Now, the other categories we covered, they would either show you when you registered or when you last updated your registration. Well, when they pay for the voter records, they get both. When you registered and anytime you updated your registration. So they can see if you've lived at multiple addresses within the same municipality, if you got married at some point, and they'll also be able to see if you've ever changed your party enrollment status. Now, if you've listened to episode three, Finding Biden's Base, you may recall that between the 2016 and 2020 presidential election, Maine saw a massive shift of unenrolled voters joining the Democrat Party. Over that period of time, registered voters that were unenrolled in any political party dropped by around 45,000 voters. Meanwhile, the Democrats picked up over 48,000 new party members over the same period of time. The shift was enough to make the unenrolled voters go from Maine's largest voting bloc to second place behind the Democrat Party. Now, one of the questions that episode 3 left off with was, how did that massive shift happen? Well, this is the sort of data that could be used to help answer that question. We'd be able to see exactly who shifted from unenrolled to enrolled with the Democrats after the 2016 election, but before the 2020 election. And then, just look for patterns. Use date of birth to figure which age group saw the biggest shift, grouping by county, congressional, state, senate, or house districts, which show which areas lost the most unenrolled voters. So quite a bit of information is available to the established political parties and incumbent politicians. For not a lot of money, considering how much election money flows into this state every couple years. And actually, technically, it's not just the political parties and elected officials that are granted access to this level of information. It also includes, quote, an individual or organization engaged in so-called get-out-the-vote efforts directly related to a campaign or other activities directly related to a campaign. So, other activities directly related to a campaign. Think groups like the ones that end up sending out mailers leading up to an election. They're not necessarily tied to any one political candidate, but sometimes they're in support of a candidate or opposed to a candidate or it's a mailer dealing with a specific policy issue or referendum question that's going to be on the ballot. Well, this is how those types of groups get your address. And it also specifically mentions, quote-unquote, get-out-the-vote groups. These groups will do canvassing during an election year, asking questions and promoting a particular slate of candidates. But get-out-the-vote groups will also use mailers to reach voters too, especially this past election cycle. Many Mainers were being sent information from various get-out-the-vote groups that were offering to help people that were either not registered to vote, or weren't sure of their status, or were interested in voting by absentee. Some even included a form to fill out and were effectively offering a free service for people wanting to help either register to vote, or wanted to help cast an absentee ballot. And data like this, to a group like that, invaluable probably worth at least five to ten times what the state charges. For example, they could narrow it down to only the voter files of voters in the second district that are unenrolled in any party 
is over the age of 65, and is considered an inactive voter. But that's just one example. They could just as easily focus on, rather than voters that rarely vote, voters that are unenrolled voters but vote regularly in any federal, state, or municipal election whenever possible. Or only unenrolled voters that vote in presidential elections. It allows a group like that to get real specific with how they direct their time and financial resources. They can skip right past voters that are enrolled in a party, and so have probably already made up their mind, and get real specific with how they direct their time and financial resources. Alright, now, another thing that registers are supposed to be doing is, when someone from another state moves to Maine and registers to vote here, the registrar is supposed to contact where they used to live and let them know they've moved to Maine and registered to vote here. And two things about this part. The first is that reports out of other states would suggest that an interstate communication breakdown has led to folks getting mail-in ballots sent to addresses in states they don't live in anymore. I haven't seen those sorts of reports tied to Maine, but this is connected to Maine's election process and is where I think issues could result. But the issues lay outside Maine's jurisdiction. Hopefully, Maine's registers are, in fact, taking that step of at least trying to contact out-of-state municipalities to notify them. But Maine statute can't require another state to notify a Maine municipality of when someone moves out of Maine. And the second thing is that, even if all 50 states has a similar requirement, that the registrar needs to contact the registrar in another state, we're talking about several thousand municipalities across 50 states all working under their own voter roll requirements. And while frankly, whether through inexperience or deliberate malfeasance, all it takes is a handful of incompetent registrars to cause serious problems across multiple states. And that's with us assuming every other state has a similar requirement of their registrars, which is something that is at the edge of my understanding. It's definitely something worth looking into, but looking into voter laws in other states and comparing them to Maine, that's a whole different animal. So, for now, it's worth at least knowing that some cracks may be outside Maine's control. Okay, now, there is one other role laid out by the legislature in Title 21A. The role of election clerk. So, not a municipal clerk, not a ward clerk, an election clerk. Very different things. And every polling place needs to have at least two, one from each of the major political parties, so at least one Democrat and one Republican. And if they end up needing more, they can't have either party outnumbered by more than one. The idea being to try and keep it as balanced as possible. And this one is actually set up so that, basically, if you're a warden, ward clerk, or deputy warden, you can't be doing the roles assigned to the election clerks. However, election clerks work under the direct supervision of the warden and are even required to assist the warden as needed. And how one becomes an election clerk is a little different than the other election officials I've gone over. They need to be nominated. And nominations can come from the local chapter or committee of either major political party. They can come from the municipal clerk directly or, really, any registered voter from the municipality can nominate someone for election clerk. And so, what is it that election clerks do? 
that the wardens are only allowed to supervise but not do themselves? Well, after the seal is broken on those packages of ballots, the ballots are distributed to the election clerks, who then go and take their seats near the entrance of the polling station with a copy of the registrar's most up-to-date registered voter list. Title 21A refers to this as the incoming voting list. And then, anyone who wishes to vote must state their name and address to an election clerk. The election clerk checks the registrar's incoming voter list and gives them a ballot if the name and address they provide is on the registrar's list. If the address they give doesn't match, or their name isn't in the official list, then they're directed over to the registrar's table to register to vote before being given a ballot. Maine allows same-day registration, and so I think in most cases, maybe all cases, the registrar has a table set up with an eye shot of where the election clerks are set up. And so how this works is that after registering their vote, the registrar gives them a piece of paper that the voter then goes and gives to the election clerks. And this piece of paper, this document, has the same weight as actually having their name on the registrar's list that the election clerks are working off. And I'll note here too that for the people that believe Maine should have a voter ID law, this is where that type of law would come into play. The idea being that when you go up to those two election clerks and say your name and address, you then have to show a state ID to prove that yes, you are who you say you are and you live where you say you live. Okay, back to election clerks. After you tell them who you are and where you live, the election clerk checks your name off of the registrar's list, gives you a ballot, you go to the voting booth, do your thing, and then, if you're in a small town that's counting by hand, then you drop your ballot into the ballot box. And if you're in a municipality using a ballot tabulator, then you feed it into the tabulator, it reads the ballot, and drops the ballot into what is technically considered the ballot box. And in either case, it's likely there is an election clerk nearby directing people where and how to insert their ballot. Okay, it's after 8 p.m. and the polls have just closed, and if your municipality is counting by hand, it's now the job of the election clerks, under the supervision of the warden, to start counting ballots. And this, this is another one of those things that is open for the public to go and watch. Quote, the ballots should be counted publicly so that those present may observe the proceedings. End quote. And in places that are still counting by hand, it's the warden that opens up the ballot box and is physically taking the ballots out of the ballot box after the polls close. And then the election clerks divide the ballots into stacks of 50 with no more than one group having less than 50. And then the election clerks break into teams of two, one Republican and one Democrat, and each team, using tally sheets provided by the Secretary of State's office, starts working through the piles, with the end result being that the two election clerks, a Democrat and a Republican, agree on the final count on each of the stacks. So, there should be two identical tally sheets for each stack. One of the tally sheets is wrapped around the pile of ballots it represents and put into a tamper-proof ballot security container, and the other tally sheet is handed over to the warden so that the warden can come up with a total tally of each office and question on the ballot for the entire polling station. And then those total tally results are turned over to the municipal clerk. 
Okay, that's counting by hand. The process followed when tabulators are used is a little different, and it's relatively brief, so I'll just read it. Quote, as soon as the polls have closed and the last qualified voter has voted, the warden shall proceed to supervise the counting of the ballots under the observation of the public. The warden shall run the official tally tape from each electronic tabulating device and shall record the total votes from the tape on the tally sheet provided by the Secretary of State. The official tally tape must be signed by the warden and one election clerk from each of the major parties. It goes on to say that the ballots and tally sheets need to be packed into the same type of tamper-proof ballot boxes that hand-counted ballots would use, and that, quote, the warden shall run an additional copy of the tally tape to provide the clerk with the tally sheets and the return of votes cast, and may run additional copies of the tally tape to pose for public review, end quote. Okay, so I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything. So I pulled up a copy of the DS200's Operator's Guide, and down on page 93, it explains that before anything can be printed, there is a specific procedure that needs to be followed. The warden needs to unlock an access door and press the Close Polls button. It asks if you're sure you want to close the polls. You tap Close Polls again, and that's it. The tabulator starts printing election results. And the DS200 has a few different reports it's actually able to print out. And which reports the tabulator prints depends on what the Secretary of State programmed into those USB drives that are controlling them. The other thing that depends on what the Secretary of State programmed into those USB drives is whether or not the polls are able to be opened after they have already been closed. Because there are some states, including Maine, that count absentee ballots after the polls close on election day. But yeah, quite a bit different from what the towns that are counting by hand are doing. They're not dividing up ballots into piles of 50. I'm not even sure of the point of having the election clerk sign off on the tally tape. I mean, the point of doing it with the hand counts is to prove that the people from both parties agree on the results of those 50 ballots. It seems like mostly a formality to have them do it for the tabulator tallies. I don't know, maybe there's a justification, but I'm just not seeing it. But regardless of whether it's coming from two election clerks doing a hand count or from a tabulator, the steps to wrap things up is the same. The warden turns over those tally sheets along with the copies of tally sheets or tally tape that were used to produce it over to the municipal clerk. The used ballots, along with some other unspecified election materials, are packed into a tamper-proof container. Unused ballots are marked and put into the ballot box that they arrived in. Then the box is marked and stored separately from the tamper-proof container that the used ballots are in. Also stored separately from both the used and unused ballots is the incoming voter list that the two election clerks are working off. Once they've checked everyone that voted off, that's put into its own package, and a certificate with signatures of both election clerks along with the warden is used to seal it shut. And then that's it. That's what Maine's legislature expects from every Maine municipality to do for their election day procedure to be legitimate under Maine state law. They've created effectively four different roles that need to be filled. The municipal clerk, the warden, and then any of their assistants, the registrar, and the election clerks. 
all working in tandem to make Election Day in Maine happen. Now, I passed over something earlier because I needed to set the stage a bit more before diving into it. But I'd say that's the best I'm going to do at explaining what's happening in the municipal part of the Maine election process. So now I want to go back and dive deeper into how absentee voting works in Maine. Because the process of absentee voting at some point went from something that was designed to help people that can't vote on election day to something that, quite frankly, is designed to compete with election day as the preferred mode of voting. The rules and regulations at this point really exist parallel to the regulations dealing with election day voting. So let's back it up. Let's go back to before the election, some three months prior to election day. This is when people can first start requesting and casting absentee ballots. And the person voters need to see if they want to cast an absentee ballot, the municipal clerk, the municipality's state-sanctioned election supervisor. They're in charge of the municipality's absentee voter process. The legislature set up a few different ways a voter can request an absentee ballot from their municipal clerk. You can either mail or hand-deliver a written request. That's one option. You can submit an official absentee ballot application. These are forms that can be picked up at any city or town hall through the municipal clerk starting three months before an election. The forms are designed and distributed by the Secretary of State's office, so there is consistency across municipalities. And after a voter gets their absentee ballot application from their municipal clerk, once they've filled it out, there are a couple of different ways that they can submit it to the municipal clerk. It can be sent through the mail, or the voter can return it to the clerk in person. The legislature also allows for completing an application over the phone, with the municipal clerk filling out a hard copy of the absentee ballot application for the voter and making a mark to indicate it's an over-the-phone application. Or, the voter can submit an application electronically and have the municipal clerk print it out and have a mark on it to indicate it's an electronic application. But regardless of which option you pick to request an absentee ballot, whether it be with a written request, filling out a hard copy of the absentee ballot application, calling it in, or sending the application in electronically, they all require at least three things. They all require the voter's name, date of birth, and their residence address, so no P.O. boxes. The application does not require that you include a reason why you can't vote on the scheduled election day. And only sometimes is a signature required. If you're doing it through a phone call or electronically, then you don't need one. But if you're submitting a written request or you completed an actual hard copy of an absentee ballot application, then the application needs to be signed. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First off, it's not really possible to provide a signature over the phone or electronically, but that's not the only thing going on here. The other part is that they sort of serve different purposes, or rather, they all can do the same thing, except that requesting an absentee ballot with a written request or by filling out a hard copy of the actual application can do even more. If the voter is going to have an immediate family member or a third party help them fill out the application or write the request, is going to be responsible for delivering the absentee ballot to the voter, or is going to be the one responsible for returning the absentee ballot back to the municipal clerk, then they'll either have to submit a written request for an absentee ballot, or they'll need to fill out a hard copy of an absentee ballot application. 
They're not allowed to phone it in or apply electronically. If it's a family member, then the written request or application has to designate that person to do it. It needs to include how that person is related and the signature of the family member is required. And actually, the way it's worded, it says it requires, quote, the signature of the voter or the voter's immediate family member who is making the application or written request, end quote. So if the voter signs it, then the family member that's helping doesn't have to sign anything. And if the family member does sign it, then the signature of the actual voter isn't required. Okay, now what if it's not an immediate family member that's helping the voter apply for and submit an absentee ballot? It's a third party, maybe someone the voter knows, a friend, a neighbor, or maybe it's someone they don't know, someone that just happened to reach out and offer their assistance. Well, with third parties, a lot of the same rules apply as if it were an immediate family member helping, they need to be designated on the request or application, and the third party needs to sign it. But unlike the immediate family option, there doesn't appear to be the same leniency when requiring a voter's signature. It needs to have both, a signature from the voter and the third party that's helping. And there are actually a few other rules that seem to only apply to third parties when they're assisting voters get and submit absentee ballots. So, not just the application, but the ballot itself. But I'll come back to that in a minute. So, the municipal clerk is responsible for accepting written requests and absentee ballot applications. And actual absentee ballot applications can be submitted in one of three ways. Either fill out a hard copy and submit it to the municipal clerk in person, complete an application over the phone or electronically, if it's over the phone, the municipal clerk has to write telephone request on the hard copy, and electronic applications get a similar notation identifying it as an electronic submission. And if it's a written request or a physical absentee ballot application, the clerk is checking to make sure it has all the required signatures. Alright, now, once that's all taken care of, Next thing the clerk does is check the registrar's voter list to make sure that the person on the application or the written request is actually registered to vote in that municipality, and that the address provided matches the one on the registrar's list. And if that checks out, the clerk then has to verify that the applicant's date of birth is not missing and it's readable. If the voter is using a third party, then making sure the application has both a voter and third party signature on it. Now, if something doesn't check out, like it turns out that the person on the application isn't in the registrar's official list, so they're requesting an absentee ballot but are not actually registered to vote. Well, Title 21A includes a provision that, even if the person is not listed in the municipality's enrolled voter list, the municipal clerk is still allowed to issue them an absentee ballot. They just have to include a voter registration card along with it with the preference being that they return their voter registration card sometime before they return the ballot. And if the voter ends up mailing them around the same time, the legislature stipulates that it must be sent in a separate envelope than the one the ballot is returned in. Now, if there's some other problem with the application, like they put a P.O. box number instead of their actual residence address, or it's missing a third-party signature, the clerk is then responsible for reaching out to the voter and explaining what needs to be corrected before their application can be accepted. Alright, that's pretty much what Maine's absentee ballot application process looks like. 
But before I go into what the clerk does with that application and the procedures around submitting an actual absentee ballot, I want to go over a few of the other rules that apply to third parties during this process. Okay, first off, and this rule doesn't technically just apply to voters using a third party to help with an absentee ballot request, but it seems most likely to affect a third party, especially when attempting to assist multiple voters. And it's a short line, so I'll just read it out loud. From section 753A, quote, On request, the clerk shall furnish a reasonable number of absentee ballot applications to any person. So, there's nothing in the legislation that requires a third party to have a voter in mind when they go and request an application. And, in fact, it's left up to the municipal clerk as to how many applications they want to give to any one person at any one time. Another rule, this one specifically does apply to third parties helping voters with the application process. This rule applies to third parties that are picking up and returning ballots for voters, not just the application. This is from section 753B, quote, The clerk may not issue an absentee ballot to a third person who already has been issued five absentee ballots for voters in the municipality until the third person has returned one of those ballots. Okay, quick note. When I say third party, I'm using it as a catch-all term for any person acting as an intermediary between a voter and a municipal clerk. Something a third person would most certainly be in this case. Title 21A uses third party and third person for slightly different scenarios, but their functions clearly overlap, and nothing borrows a third person from being a third party or vice versa. But yeah, if a municipal clerk has already issued five absentee ballots to an individual acting as a third party or third person, that person needs to get at least one of those five absentee ballots returned before the municipal clerk is allowed to issue them another one. And actually, while the legislation says no more than five ballots at a time, that's per municipality. If a third party decided to help voters across four or five different municipalities, then they could be responsible for 20 to 25 different absentee ballots at any one time. Another rule that only applies to third parties and absentee ballots is that once they've been issued an absentee ballot, they got two business days to bring it to the voter, have them fill it out, and get it returned to the municipal clerk, which could mean a good three or four days if that third party picked up those ballots on a Thursday or a Friday. And if the third party doesn't get that absentee ballot back in time, the municipal clerk has the authority to either mail out another one to the address on the application, or they can actually go and deliver a new one in person. But then that's it. They're not allowed to issue that voter a third ballot. So, a third party is allowed to have as many absentee ballot applications as they can get their hands on. If they're willing to travel to different municipalities, then there's no cap as to how many absentee ballots a third party can have on them at any one time. And depending on when they pick up those absentee ballots from the clerk, they got two to four days to get them returned before the clerk is required to do any sort of follow-up with the voter. So, for the individual that sets out to help get as many absentee ballots cast as possible, really, the only limiting factors are how much time in the day can they afford to do this, and how much money are they willing to spend on gas and vehicle wear and tear. But even still, some random person setting out to get as many absentee voters as possible inside those three months before an election, my guess, 
Best case scenario, maybe they get somewhere between a few dozen and a couple hundred absentee ballots submitted that wouldn't have otherwise. Now, maybe if this person connected with some like-minded individuals and they work together to help voters cast absentee ballots, or better yet, one of those get-out-the-vote groups I talked about earlier, a group like that, they'd be able to compensate that third party for their time and travel. They'd be able to connect them with a network of like-minded individuals. And as I covered earlier, they'd get access to very specific voter lists telling them exactly who they should reach out to. And now, some random person that would have been lucky to help a couple hundred voters across a handful of towns to cast absentee ballots is now working as part of a well-funded organization that's goal isn't to help a few hundred or even a few thousand vote absentee, it's to get tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of voters to vote absentee across an entire state. Now, something else worth knowing here too is that even though there isn't anything explicitly laid out in this section as to what the clerk should do about third parties that submit an absentee ballot application are given an absentee ballot for them to deliver to a voter, but then never deliver the ballot to the voter, or don't return it completed to the clerk within a few days. There is a penalty for that third party, but it's under a different section. Section 791. It's considered a Class E crime for a third party that doesn't get those ballots returned within those two business day deadline. Which, if you're not aware, a Class E crime, that's up to six months in jail and a thousand dollars. So, it's possible that a third party that fails to either deliver the absentee ballot to the voter or fails to return the completed ballot to the clerk could end up with a max six months in jail and a thousand dollar fine. But for that to happen, the municipal clerk would have to report it to some authority, a cop, maybe a, a district attorney. But again, there is nothing that explicitly says the clerk should do anything other than give the voter a second ballot. Okay, let's get back on track. We covered the absentee ballot application process. Let's see what the actual absentee ballot process looks like. All right, so it's the municipal clerk's responsibility to pull together all the absentee ballot materials for each accepted application. So that's a ballot along with a return envelope. And then the return envelope has an affidavit attached to it that the municipal clerk has to partially fill out. Specifically, they need to be the ones that fill in the voter's name and address on the top. The municipal clerk then either mails out the election materials to the voter, the voter picks them up from the municipal clerk's office, or an immediate family member or third party gets it for them, either in person or via mail. But regardless of how the voter gets their absentee ballot, the rules established by the legislature on what the voter is supposed to do once they receive their absentee ballot goes like this. First, they have to go somewhere so that nobody can see how they're voting on their ballot. And while they are voting, they're not supposed to be talking to anyone about how they should vote. Once the ballot has been filled out, the voter puts it in the return envelope that the municipal clerk included with the absentee ballot and seals it up. And then, they have to complete the affidavit that's attached to the return envelope. They have to sign it and they have to include the reason for why they can't vote on the scheduled election day. So they didn't need to state the reason when requesting an absentee ballot, but the legislature does require that a reason be given when the completed absentee ballot is returned to the clerk. 
and the legislature lays out a few different justifications, and I'll just list them like they have. Absence, incapacity, religious belief, confinement, working when polls are open, residence in certain facilities like elder care homes, for example, or working at the registrar's office on election day is specifically mentioned as well. Main citizens outside the U.S. or marginal literacy. And the legislature didn't include any description or even definitions for anything on that list, but an absentee ballot must have at least one of those listed in the affidavit attached to the return envelope. And that's it. They can either drop it in the mail or return it to the municipal clerk in person. In this past presidential election, an executive order encouraged municipalities to install absentee ballot drop boxes either inside or right outside the municipal office. Or, if they designated someone in their absentee ballot application to do so, they can have an immediate family member or third party deliver it to the municipal clerk, drop it in either a mailbox, or, if the municipality has one, a ballot drop box. And something else I wanted to point out here too, specifically looking at when a family member brings it in. There is actually a provision that says it's okay if a different immediate family member ends up bringing in the voter's ballot than who was designated to do so. The clerk will accept it anyway. They'll just add a note to the original application that the family relation and a signature of the person that did drop it off. And something else I need to include here that applies to both the absentee ballot application and the actual casting of the absentee ballot. If the voter is, say, blind, or is a quadriplegic, or maybe illiterate, or has something going on that would require another person to fill out and sign the application, the ballot, or the return envelope and affidavit on behalf of the voter, then there is another set of rules that need to be followed. The first thing is that the legislation makes no distinction between an immediate family member and a third party. Anyone that is assisting the voter in reading or filling out the absentee ballot or the absentee ballot application for the voter is referred to as an aid. And if there is an aid that helps the voter complete the application or they assist with reading or even filling the voter's ballot out for them, sealing it in the envelope, and then maybe even completing the affidavit for them too, that aid has to sign and attest to helping the voter on a certificate that needs to be completed when submitting either an application or an actual absentee ballot. And the only restrictions on who can be an aide are employers. So a voter's boss or supervisor could not be the one helping them cast an absentee ballot. But co-workers, family, friends, neighbors, other third parties, they can be. In fact, I see nothing that would bar the same family members or third-party individuals that are helping them apply for, pick up, and return their ballot, also being the aid that helps them complete their ballot. So, in this type of scenario, the law requires that whoever that person is that's going to help the voter, that their name needs to be included in the voter's application, or written request, depending on how the voter went about it. So, the municipal clerk should be aware right away that this voter is going to be using an aid to help them. And what it says is that if the voter is unable to read or mark the ballot because of the voter's disability, illiteracy, or religious faith, then 
instead of the procedure I explained earlier with the voter basically going somewhere private, not talking to anyone. Okay, well, when the voter needs an aide to complete the ballot, then the whole thing has to happen in front of another person, a witness. It can either be a notary public, a municipal clerk, clerk of courts, or it could literally be any other individual. So anyone can be a witness to having an aide fill out an absentee ballot for a voter. And what this witness has to do is have the aide or voter show them the ballot at the very beginning so that they can see that it is a fresh ballot. No marks yet. And then, other than letting the aide read the ballot and having the voter instruct the aide on how they want the ballot marked, the witness is also there to ensure there is no other communication between the voter and anyone else. And again, the legislature wants this happening as away from other people as possible. Now, once the ballot is complete, the ballot is put into the envelope and sealed up in front of the witness. Either the voter fills out the affidavit that's attached to the envelope, or they can have the aide do it for them. The aide then completes a certificate on the outside of the envelope attesting to what they did, and the witness signs something similar attesting to what they saw. And then, either the voter or the aide addresses the envelope and either hand delivers it to the municipal clerk, mails it in, or if they got one, drops it into a ballot drop box. Alright, so once the municipal clerk has a returned absentee ballot, what happens next? Well, once the returned absentee ballot envelope is in the custody of the municipal clerk, they do like a basic intake procedure. They have to mark on the envelope the date and time it was received, and if the voter wants, they can get a receipt showing that same thing. After that, the municipal clerk pulls the original absentee ballot application and attaches it to the returned absentee ballot envelope. The clerk checks over the affidavit, making sure it's complete, that the name and address the clerk had originally written on the envelope before giving it to the voter hasn't changed, that a reason is given in the affidavit for why they need to vote absentee, something that wasn't required on their application. They're also checking for signatures. If the voter needed a witness to be present, then the clerk is checking for their signed certification and anyone else's signature that should be there, family member, third party. And even though signature verification is impossible with absentee voters that either phoned in or submitted their application electronically, and that a voter's signature isn't required if they're helped by an aide or family member, they are still doing it with the applications that do have signatures. But even then, the way the legislation is worded, even when a signature is required, it's not required that it matches, like, at all. According to Section 3, which reads, quote, When this title, so referring to Title 21A, when this title requires a name or signature on a document, immaterial irregularities do not invalidate the name or signature if the identity of the person's name is clear to the public official charged with reviewing that document, end quote. And the definition given for Immaterial irregularities, quote, immaterial irregularities include, but are not limited to, misspelling, inclusion or omission of initials, and a substitution of initials or nicknames for given names. So, for example, if a third party helps a voter retrieve and return their application and ballot, then according to Section 3, 
it doesn't matter if the voter's signature from the absentee ballot application doesn't match the voter's signature on the affidavit. It could have a nickname on one and a legal name on the other. Maybe one signature is missing an initial, or maybe one signature is flat out spelled wrong. It doesn't matter. The municipal clerk is allowed to accept it regardless, and then just make a note on the ballot's envelope of the difference. So signature verification is effectively non-existent in Maine's absentee ballot rules. On its face, it looks like it's there, but it's barely there. Consider it this way. There are effectively four different ways to request an absentee ballot. Apply over the phone, no signature required. Apply electronically, no signature required. Submit a written request or fill out an application. A signature is required, but according to Section 3, it doesn't even need to be spelled the same. They could literally be two different names and it doesn't matter. The clerk can still accept it, as long as they make a note of the discrepancy. And actually, there is one other way that a person could technically cast an absentee ballot that I didn't mention yet, but you don't need to fill out an application or a written request to do it. How it works is the voter, so not an immediate family member or third party, but the actual voter, goes into the town or city hall during a time that the municipal clerk is there, can verbally request an absentee ballot, and then fill it out with the clerk present, right there in town or city hall, right in front of the clerk. And it's otherwise the same process. Fill out the ballot in a way that others can't see what you're marking. Don't communicate with anyone on how to vote. And then, with the municipal clerk watching, stuff the completed ballot into the return envelope, seal it, fill out the attached affidavit, and hand it over to the municipal clerk. And because doing it this way doesn't require first filling out an application of any kind, there's no signature to compare the one made on the affidavit. So, there's no signature requirement for phone-ins and electronic applications. If they're getting help from an aide or family member, then no signature is required. And then for the ones that do require a signature, it explicitly says that it's not necessary that any of those signatures match. But, signature verification aside, if the envelope has everything that's required to be written on it or attached to it, then the clerk writes OK on the return envelope along with their own initials. Now, if the clerk does find a problem, catches something missing while doing the intake, like the affidavit is only partially completed for some reason, or a third-party signature is missing. Maybe the affidavit isn't attached for some reason. Those ones don't get the clerk's okay mark, but the clerk will note the reason why it's not okay right on the envelope. At this point, it's not the clerk's job to separate them into okay and not okay piles. They're all kept together in a single pile, and the clerk is responsible for keeping them all locked up and secure until they're processed. And... The actual official policy, how these absentee ballots are actually kept physically secure, the details aren't really something laid out in Title 21A. The legislature specifically tasked the Secretary of State with hatching out the details of what securing absentee ballots mean in practice, and then instructing the clerks on the procedure. Now, something interesting here. If they actually do catch a problem, and the envelope doesn't get the clerks okay, Maybe a signature is missing, or they wrote a P.O. box instead of their physical address. Whatever the reason. I don't see any provision in this section that says the clerk should then reach out to the voter, tell them the mistake, or what's missing, and then give them a chance to correct it. 
Now, if there's a mistake with the absentee ballot application, they'll reach out and let the voter know what needs to be done to correct it. But when it comes to mistakes on the absentee ballot envelope or with the affidavit, there is no such provision. And I thought this was strange at first, but it might be because it's not something they could do with every absentee voter. For example, Maine accepts absentee ballots up until the close of polls. So what I think is happening is that if someone mails in a ballot two months out from the election day, and then there's something wrong with the envelope or with the affidavit, and the clerk catches it, there's enough time between then and the actual election to reach out to the voter, let them know the problem, and then offer a chance to correct it. But if someone mailed one in and it arrived two days before the election, the clerk may not have a chance to catch it and contact them with enough time for them to actually get and fix it. And so, rather than create a distinct advantage for absentee voters that get it in way earlier, the legislature has set it up so that, actually, how they've done it is that it's basically up to the clerk. I don't see anything that specifically says that the clerk must or should notify the voter of the problem, but I also don't see anything that forbids it. And so this might be one of those things that falls to the discretion of the municipal clerk and is something that could cause issues. In fact, and just to build off this a little bit more, one of the complaints out of Pennsylvania during this past presidential election sounds sort of like this, where election officials in one county had, based on their interpretation of Pennsylvania law, had given absentee voters a chance to make corrections. And then, voters in a neighboring county, based on their interpretation of Pennsylvania law, did not give absentee voters the same opportunity to make corrections. And so, the argument being that those counties were operating under different election rules that put their voters at a clear disadvantage to the voters in counties allowing corrections. Now, the other angle here is that a voter, after submitting their absentee ballot, could easily call up the clerk and make sure everything is good and that their envelope got the okay mark. But what's not clear is what the clerk would say. Do they offer a chance to correct it for only those that call and ask? Does that put those not able to call at a disadvantage? Do they tell the voter there is a problem, but there's nothing you can do about it? Maybe they just tell them that it's been received, but no comment if it's actually got the okay. And I just want to reiterate something here. The municipal clerks at this stage are really only doing an intake procedure. They're not processing them, and they're certainly not counting them. In fact, they're forbidden from opening those envelopes at this point. They're only really documenting it being accepted and then marking on it whether it's okay or not. And if not, why not? And then keeping them all secure until it's time to process and count them. So how and when are absentee ballots in Maine processed? Well, the legislature has provided a few different answers to that question. The first option, what I'm calling the default option, has the warden processing and counting everything after the polls close and after the election day ballots have been counted. And I'm calling it the default option because if the municipality decides to use one of the other options, the clerk is required to put up a notification in a public place that announces it. That's not necessary if they go with option one. 
unless otherwise notified, it's assumed they're going to follow this procedure. So I'll start by going into how the default option works, and then we can see how the default option compares to the other two. Okay, in addition to everything else the municipal clerk is responsible for bringing to the polling stations for election day, they're also responsible for bringing the absentee ballot envelopes and the absentee ballot applications that are attached to them, along with a copy of a running list they've kept of every person that dropped off an absentee ballot. All of it is turned over to the warden sometime before the polls open on election day, and at which point the warden is then responsible for their security until they are finally processed and counted. And something to remember from earlier here, the legislation is set up so to allow the clerk to also fulfill the role of warden, and even if they're not the warden, then they're automatically a deputy warden. So in some cases, they may just be turning the ballots over to themselves as they carry out the role of warden or deputy warden. Okay, the polls are closed, and all the voters in line before 8pm have cast their ballot, and all those ballots have been counted. It's time to process absentee ballots. The warden's job at this point, with regards to processing absentee ballots, is basically to sort through them, looking over the notes made by the clerk during the intake process, which ones were marked okay, which ones weren't, checking over the registrar's list, making sure they're actually registered to vote, because remember, there are scenarios where a person could be sent an absentee ballot and not be registered to vote yet, so they gotta make sure those people did, in fact, finally register. Double-checking the affidavit, making sure all the signatures that are required are present. It specifically says they'll use municipal clerk's assessment when signature verification is actually required. So again, another example of signature verification not really being a thing in Maine. They're also supposed to cross-reference the names of absentee voters with the voters list the election clerks have been working off all day. You remember the election clerks, right? There's at least two of them, one from each political party. They're the ones checking in voters and distributing ballots. Well, come the end of the day, the check marks on their list will represent every registered voter that voted on election day. The warden takes that list and checks all the names of voters that submitted absentee ballots, looking for anyone that may have decided to come in and vote in person instead. And as the warden is working through this stack of absentee ballot envelopes, probably with some help from the deputy warden, or ward clerk in the cities, and as they're going through them, the ones with problems get rejected written across them and are moved into their own separate reject pile. The warden then announces the names of every absentee voter that did not have their ballot rejected so that one of the election clerks can mark AV next to the voter's name on their list, and then they, quote, remove each ballot from its envelope without destroying the envelope or unfolding the ballot, end quote. Now, if they're in a municipality with more than one polling place, so one of the cities, the larger towns, different polling places within a municipality will use different colored ballots. So, the warden, after calling the absentee voter's name, opens their envelope and pulls out a folded ballot, but it's the wrong color for the polling station. The folded ballot goes directly back into the envelope, it's resealed and put aside. It's not rejected though, at least not yet. 
There's a process in Title 21A that allows someone to challenge whether someone's absentee ballot should be counted or not. Like if someone knows one of the absentee voters does not actually live in the municipality, they can challenge their ballot. And in this scenario, where a ballot from the wrong polling station is pulled from the envelope, the warden is required, by law, to challenge its validity. So it's not rejected right away. Basically, it's sent back to processing to verify whether that absentee voter should be casting a ballot there or not, because clearly something went wrong. Otherwise, the voter's name is called out, so an election clerk can check and mark the incoming voter list, the envelope is carefully opened, the ballot is removed, and, assuming it's the correct color, is unfolded, and is ready to be officially counted. And those ballots are counted, quote, as soon as the absentee ballots are processed, they are counted the same as regular ballots. So, if the municipality is hand counting, they'll follow the same procedure as if they were hand counting regular ballots. And if they use a tabulator, then they'll run them through a tabulator. Now, there are a couple of things that I feel are sort of missing in the explanation with regards to using tabulators to count absentee ballots. The first is, Okay, these machines have a button that will, quote, close the polls. And whether or not the polls can be turned back on depends on how the Secretary of State programmed the USB drive that's running that specific tabulator. So are they closing the polls and then turning them back on to count absentee ballots? Or are they leaving the polls open until they run absentee ballots? And then how does this all show up on the tally tape? Does it print two off, one for election day and one for absentee ballots? If it's just one tape, does it show election day totals separate from absentee totals? Or is there only one single combined tally total shown on a single tally tape? None of those specifics are laid out under Title 21A, and so it ends up being a policy that is written and handed down by the Secretary of State's office. But yeah, unless your municipality put up a notification saying otherwise, that is the process the warden is following to count absentee ballots. Okay, and before I go into the next option, counting absentee ballots during election day while the polls are open, there's something else I want to explain first, and it has to do with one of the things the warden is keeping an eye out for while processing ballots. Now, as they are processing these things, figuring out which to reject and which to count, one of the things they're keeping an eye for are multiple absentee ballots submitted under the same name. Quote, If more than one return envelope is received from the same voter who was authorized to receive a second ballot pursuant to Section 753B, then the clerk or warden shall process and count the ballot from the envelope marked second ballot issued or bearing the latest date and time and shall reject and keep sealed the first absentee envelope. Okay, now that's from under Title 21A, Section 756, Paragraph 6. And when it says Section 753B, all that's referring to is the section explaining that a voter would have to provide good cause before a clerk can issue a second ballot, with the only exclusion specifically mentioned being that if the reason is because the voter wants to change how they voted but already submitted it to the municipal clerk, then the clerk can't issue a second one. Otherwise, it's pretty much anything goes. 
if it has coffee stains, was accidentally torn or set on fire, maybe a kid hit it somewhere, or a dog chewed it up, or you voted for the wrong person, but have not officially submitted to the clerk yet, or a third party never delivered the first ballot for some reason, maybe it went missing one day after a few friends visited. Whatever the reason, Title 21A allows the clerk to issue a second ballot. Now, when they're processing ballots, if they see that a person ended up returning both ballots, then the warden is supposed to accept either the one that was marked by the clerk as second ballot issued, or the one with the latest received date. It then clearly says that the earlier dated one must remain sealed and put into the reject pile. Now, within that same paragraph I just quoted from, which is paragraph 6 of section 756, directly under that line about a voter casting two ballots after being issued two ballots, reads this line, quote, If more than one return envelope is received from the same voter who was not authorized to receive a second ballot pursuant to section 753B, then the clerk or warden shall process and count the ballot from the envelope bearing the earliest date and time. So, if there's an absentee voter that submitted more than one absentee ballot, but they're not on the clerk's list as having actually ever been issued more than one ballot by the clerk's office, then the warden is required to count the one with the earliest date. So opposite of if the voter had been issued a legitimate second ballot by the clerk's office, if the voter wasn't officially issued two ballots, then the legislation assumes that the first one received is the legitimate one. But what I really find interesting about that line, especially when compared to the one before it, it gives zero instruction on what to do with the ballots that are not accepted to be counted in this scenario. There's no instruction to write reject across it, and there's nothing stating they should be put into the reject pile. If the two ballots from a voter that's on the clerk's list as having received two ballots, then the statute is very clear. Don't open it and put it in with the other rejects. But there is no such instruction if it's two or more ballots from a voter that shouldn't have had more than one in the first place. All it says is to count the one with the earliest received date. Anything received by the clerk after that is, well, it's not supposed to be counted, I assume it gets some sort of note scribbled across it, so the warden is aware, but like I said before, it's not clear that it actually ends up in the reject pile. So, despite Title 21A laying out a pretty specific scenario that, if the warden actually had to refer to while sorting absentee ballots, would potentially mean one of two things. That a voter had an absentee ballot that, legally, they shouldn't have had, or that some other individual got their hands on a fraudulent absentee ballot and attempted to submit it under someone else's name. And it's not just trying to pass a fraudulent ballot, it'd be a fraudulent ballot envelope too, along with the affidavit that's attached. Now, section 791, the penalties and violations section under the absentee voter subchapter, makes no mention of what happens to someone caught submitting a fraudulent absentee ballot. And well, really, considering the fact that the legislature laid out this pretty specific scenario predicated on someone, on accident or otherwise, submitting a fraudulent absentee ballot, I'm surprised there's nothing explicit that would provide any instruction for a warden or clerk on what to do. 
let alone a clear penalty defined either alongside it or within the subchapter's penalty and violations section. Now, that's not to say that there aren't penalties laid out in other parts of Title 21A that could be used to punish someone that got caught submitting more than one absentee ballot. Looking under Chapter 9, Section 674, quote, A person commits a Class C crime if that person, and it lists a few different reasons, and these are the ones that would be most relevant, quote, Having once voted, whether within or outside this state, again, votes at the same election, having once voted, whether within or outside this state, attempts to vote at the same election, votes by using the name of another, or attempts to vote by using the name of another. And a Class C crime in Maine, in case you're not aware, can get you up to five years in jail and a $5,000 fine. Now, this may not have been written with absentee ballots in mind, but it's possible this penalty could apply to someone that submits two or more absentee ballots, whether it be an individual trying to vote twice in their own name, or someone trying to submit absentee ballots in someone else's name. So, it's possible that someone that votes more than once by absentee, or tries to vote more than once by absentee, or someone votes absentee, or tries to vote absentee using someone else's name, would most likely be guilty of a Class C crime. And while this does provide some deterrence from trying to use absentee ballots to vote more than once, or to vote with someone else's name, it doesn't address how this voter got their hands on not just a second ballot, but potentially a second absentee ballot envelope, along with the affidavit that goes along with it. And I can only really fathom a couple of possibilities in how this could happen, and why the warden would be put in this situation at all. The first that the second ballot came from the clerk's office, that either the voter or maybe someone pretending to be the voter submits a second absentee ballot application under the voter's name. It doesn't matter how. Maybe one application was over the phone, and then a month later, a second application was submitted electronically. And then the clerk just went through the motions. And even if the clerk did realize that this person had already requested a ballot, at that point, the clerk is only doing intake receiving the thing, and making notes. They're not supposed to be deciding which will be counted and which will not. What I'm saying is that I'm not sure they could have done anything other than make a note of it on the application and another on the returned absentee envelope so that they're aware of the problem when the ballot is actually being processed. And I say aware because it's still not clear what the ward would actually do with the second ballot the voter cast that they shouldn't have had in the first place and then used to commit a Class C crime with. Clearly it shouldn't be counted, but then why no instruction to place it into the reject pile? Another scenario is that the clerk only ever issued one ballot to the voter, and so one of the ballots they submitted is a forgery. It's a copy. So what's the rules around printing fake ballots? Well, the closest thing I could find was under Chapter 9's down in Section 606, Paragraph 5. It reads, quote, reproducing official ballots. It is unlawful for a person to copy or reproduce an unmarked official ballot without the express authorization of the Secretary of State. So, reproducing an unmarked or blank ballot is unlawful. But again, there is no penalty mentioned for actually doing it, either here 
or anywhere under this absentee voting subchapter. In fact, in all of Title 21A, zero mention of any penalty or consequences for making a copy or reproducing an absentee ballot or its envelope or the affidavit, unmarked or otherwise. But again, buried in an entirely different chapter, Chapter 1, Section 32, quote, A person commits a Class E crime if that person knowingly violates a provision of this title for which no penalty has been provided. And as I mentioned before, a Class E crime in Maine is up to six months in jail and a $1,000 fine. So when that happens, when Title 21A mentions something as being illegal or unlawful, but then provides no defined penalty, like making copies of unmarked ballots, for example, then it's a max six months in jail and a $1,000 fine. So in that scenario laid out by the legislature, where a person whom was never issued more than one absentee ballot is trying to submit more than one absentee ballot, well, the person might get busted for trying to vote more than once, a Class C crime up to five years in jail and $5,000, but if you're caught making a copy of an unmarked ballot, it's a max of six months and a thousand bucks. So the penalty is way harsher for a person trying to use a copied ballot versus a person copying an unmarked ballot. And the response to that, I guess, could be that, well, the person is already facing five years, so it's not a big deal if the charge of making a copy is less. But that argument assumes that the person making the copy is the same person trying to pass it off as real. But... My issue with that idea is that, well, just consider the legal ramifications of a person caught passing or trying to pass a fake $20 bill, compared to the legal ramifications of actually printing fake 20s. Assuming the person is actually caught and arrested, the violation for trying to use a fake 20 pales in comparison to the person printing fake money. Now with all that being said, and maybe you've picked up on this already, the language used by the legislature specifically says it's unlawful to copy an unmarked ballot, a ballot that is yet to be filled out, a blank. But in all of Title 21A, there doesn't appear to be any defined consequence or specific charge, nothing that says it's unlawful, illegal, or a violation of any kind for someone to make a copy or reproduce an already completed ballot, absentee or otherwise. Now, unless the warden and the municipal clerk are completely inept, the people voting at the polling place on election day would never have an opportunity to make a copy of their completed ballot. But absentee voters, or someone supposedly trying to help that voter cast absentee, they could potentially have an opportunity, for whatever reason, to have a copy of their completed ballot made before returning it to the clerk. And while... Given the potential severity of what led up to that point, when the warden is holding two or more ballot envelopes in their hands from a voter that should have only had one, I guess I'm just surprised that, in addition to apparently having no specific instruction on what the warden or clerk is to do, other than counting the first one received, the consequences for a voter, or really anyone that copies a blank ballot or its envelope, is considered, at most, a Class C crime, the lowest class of all the crimes. Or if it's a copy of a marked ballot, then there is no crime. Title 21A does not forbid the copying of completed ballots. Alright, let's get back on track. 
I said there were three different options for municipalities to process absentee ballots, and so far we've only covered the default option, which has them processing them after the polls close on election day. Another option is that the municipality could decide to process ballots during election day when the polls are still open. They would have to put up a notification seven days prior to the election stating at what time or times the warden planned on processing absentee ballots, because this is technically something that the public is allowed to watch. And there are two ways that processing while the polls are open can work. The first is set up more for small or medium-sized towns, towns with ideally only one polling station. And then there's a second way ballots can be processed during election day that is set up for larger towns and cities, municipalities with multiple polling stations. So I'll start with the one for towns with one polling station. And so processing absentee ballots during election day in the smaller and mid-sized towns is literally the same steps that I outlined for the default option of counting them after the polls close, except the warden is processing them when the polls are open and voters are actively coming in and voting around them. So I'm picturing a warden or maybe a deputy warden set up near those two election clerks that are checking in election day voters and then going through the absentee ballots, reading the clerk's notes, which remember the clerk and warden might be the same person here, checking with the two election clerks to make sure people are actually registered to vote and then sliding the ballots into a tabulator or dropping them into a ballot box if they're counting by hand. Now I've read this a few times and something I keep getting hung up on is that, okay, ideally for the person doing this job, it would make sense to want to get a stack going while sitting in one place and then getting up and taking the process ballots over the tabulator. Ideally when there's a lull in voters going through, but it could just as easily be a preset time and then just have the election day voters wait in line for a minute or two while they run their stack of absentee ballots into the tabulator, one after another. But I'm not sure that actually is allowed, or at least the language around it I don't think is clear. Really, the only thing it says is that, quote, as soon as the absentee ballots are processed, they are counted the same as regular ballots which to me says that the ballot would have to be put in the ballot box or tabulator immediately after it was processed, so before another envelope could be opened. But that would mean that they're doing a lot of walking back and forth between the election clerks and where the ballot box or tabulator is set up, two things that are required to be set up away from each other, back and forth for each ballot, that sort of seems unlikely too. But I could also see an argument that says, well, sometimes after filling out your election day ballot, the voter has to wait in line. And so a stack of processed but not counted absentee ballots is the same as if a voter were waiting in line to use the tabulator. But for me, that interpretation, even if correct, the idea that there would be a stack of completed absentee ballots that had already been processed but had not been counted yet it just seems like it's asking for trouble, especially given the lack of consequence for copying completed ballots. Specifically, it creates an opportunity for a corrupt warden or municipal clerk to add pre-made copies of completed ballots to their stack of processed ballots that are waiting to be counted. Now, it's possible that the Secretary of State's office addresses these concerns and the instructions they provide to municipalities in the lead up to the election. 
But then that would mean we have the Secretary of State's office not just enforcing ballot counting procedures laid out by the legislature, they'd actually be creating a ballot counting procedure, something that I think is a pretty important distinction. Okay, so that's processing ballots while the polls are open on election day. More likely a process used in communities with a single voting district, and so only one polling station. Another way that a municipality can process absentee ballots while the polls are open on election day is that they process absentee ballots at a centralized location. This one's geared more toward municipalities with multiple polling stations. So, for example, Portland has 11 polling stations. Okay, well, without this central location provision, Portland would have to have all 11 polling stations processing and counting absentee ballots, each with a warden or someone designated by the warden, along with a couple of election clerks from the major political parties, processing and counting absentee ballots across 11 separate locations. So, rather than having each of the municipality's polling stations handle the absentee ballots for their district, this provision allows the municipal clerk to process all the absentee ballots for the entire city at a central location. So the only absentee ballots those individual polling stations might be dealing with are any that were delivered to the polling station that day. Any dropped off the day prior to election day would be processed and counted by the municipal clerk at the central location. And how it works is that, okay, one of the things the municipal clerk is responsible for is getting the incoming voter list from the registrar and bringing it to the election clerks working the door. But if they're doing it at a central location, when the municipal clerk gets that list, they have to write A, V next to everyone that had cast an absentee ballot before election day, make copies of that list, and then distribute those copies to the polling stations. So if an absentee voter goes in on election day and tries to cast a regular ballot, the election clerks should see that they already cast an absentee ballot. Another difference is that it's not a warden looking over the municipal clerk's notes, isn't checking over the registrar's incoming voter list, nor dealing with voters that may have cast more than one absentee ballot. A warden isn't dealing with any of that stuff. All that stuff is still happening. It's just that it's a municipal clerk or someone designated by the municipal clerk that's dealing with it. Otherwise, it's the same default process that's described for doing them after the polls close. Now, something that is different here is that the state doesn't provide a ballot box for the centralized location. It's the municipalities that are required to come up with a ballot box that meets the Secretary of State's guidelines and is not the same one they plan on using on Election Day. And something else that's noticeably absent there is, who pays for the tabulator that gets set up at the central location? The DS-200 that would be attached to that ballot box. We know that Maine leases all its tabulators, and the Secretary of State distributes them to municipalities based on total registered voters. But what I guess I'm not sure of yet is if the municipality is responsible for compensating the Secretary of State for using additional tabulators, or if they are provided by the Secretary of State under a different section of Title 21A. I suspect it's the latter, buried in some section I've yet to stumble across yet, but I don't want to get too far into the sourcing, function, or distribution of Maine's tabulators today. For now, it's enough to know that municipalities processing absentee ballots at centralized locations have to pay for a certified ballot box 
and are legally permitted to either hand count absentee ballots or to use a tabulator. Okay, third and final option available for processing absentee ballots is under section 760B under the same absentee voter subchapter. It's called Procedures When Clerk Processes Absentee Ballots Prior to Election Day. And just like the name would suggest, this option allows the municipal clerk to count absentee ballots beginning on the fourth day before election day. So if they expect to have a lot of absentee ballots to go through, they can schedule a time or multiple times on any of those four days leading up to the election. There are six paragraphs in that section talking about voting before election day. Paragraph one deals with what time of day they can do this between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Paragraph two talks about the notification process, which, in addition to having to notify the public of their plan and schedule, they also have to notify the Secretary of State's office. And if they fail to get it submitted at least 60 days before the election, so 6-0-60 days, if they don't meet that deadline, then the municipality won't be allowed to count them in the days leading up to the election. They'll have to make do with counting them the day of or after the polls close. The third paragraph describes what to do if a member of the public wants to inspect the absentee ballot envelopes before they're processed, something that is permitted under Title 21A. Now, the fourth paragraph is a weird one, and I think it'll help to cover the last two paragraphs before this one. So I'm going to come back to it. All right, now paragraph five is two sentences long, and each deals with a different method for counting absentee ballots when they're being processed before election day. The first sentence reads, quote, The absentee ballots may not be counted, voter intent may not be determined, and election results may not be obtained or released until after the polls have closed on election day and all election day ballots have been cast, and all absentee ballots have been processed. So I'd say the legislature's intent is pretty clear here. If the municipality is going to process absentee ballots before election day, they're not allowed to carry out the final step of actually counting the ballots. Instead, they have to do what ends up being laid out in the final paragraph, paragraph 6, which reads, quote, the clerk shall ensure that the early processed absentee ballots are locked and sealed in the ballot box, automatic tabulating equipment ballot box, or tamper-proof containers provided by the Secretary of State and secured in a vault or other locked secure location until the voting resumes on election day or until the ballots are counted after the polls close, end quote. So, once they've been removed and separated from the return envelope and affidavit, all of those completed ballots are locked up and stored in some sort of secured ballot box that is apparently provided by the Secretary of State. And they're put into a vault or some sort of locked and secure space until Election Day. And then, on Election Day, they'll end up either using the default option or the second option I covered of counting ballots during Election Day, either at a centralized location or at an actual polling station. Which as I've explained, is effectively the same process. The one significant difference here being that the absentee ballots that the municipal clerk hands over to the ward on election day, the return envelope and affidavit will have already been removed. So the warden is getting just a box full of completed ballots. And then, either after the polls close or sometime during election day, the ballots are either fed into a tabulator 
or if they're doing it by hand, then with at least a couple of election clerks working through stacks of 50. Okay, that's one scenario based on the first sentence of paragraph 5. The second sentence in paragraph 5 actually creates a pretty significant exception to the rule regarding ballots not being counted before election day. Quote, A municipality that uses a high-speed ballot tabulator and receives results at the completion of the ballot scanning may not view the results until after the polls close on election day. So if a municipality decides to set up a tabulator when they're processing ballots before election day, then they're allowed to have the tabulator count those ballots, but they're not allowed to look at the results until after the polls close on the actual election day. And I initially wondered if they were expected to have the tabulator print off a tally tape, have the municipal clerk keep it in a secure area, and hopefully they can control their curiosity until after the polls close. But I don't think that's what's happening, because the tally tape would need to be signed by two election clerks, one Republican and one Democrat. But if they're not allowed to look at the tally sheet, then they can't really sign the sheet, attesting that they agree with the count. Now, I'm pretty sure what's happening is that when a municipality decides to use a tabulator to count absentee ballots before election day, then what they'll do is have the DS-200 save the results of the absentee ballot tally onto a USB drive, either the one that's programmed to control the tabulator, or if you've listened to episode 4, Who Voted for Joe Biden and What's Counting Our Votes, then you may recall that these DS-200s also have multiple USB ports located in the back of the machine specifically designed for data storage. So that's possible too, that the results are saved onto an entirely separate USB drive in the back. And then, when the polls close on election day, and the warden hits print, the tabulator is programmed to take the election day results and add them with the results saved on the USB drive. And then prints out the grand total on the tally tape. The tally tape is then signed by both a Republican and Democrat election clerk, before being handed off to the municipal clerk so they can complete their election report to the Secretary of State's office. Alright, that covers the last two paragraphs of this section that deals with voting before Election Day. So let's go back to that one I skipped, paragraph 4. And what's strange about the fourth paragraph of section 760B? Well, it says, quote, The clerk shall use the procedure described in this section when processing the absentee ballots during the designated times. Procedures for handling full ballot boxes, poll watching, and challenging ballots are conducted in the same manner as election day or as close as practical. So the procedures around dealing with ballot boxes and poll watching and challenging ballots is clear. Do what you would do if it were on election day. That's easy, and falls in line with the other two options. But that first line of paragraph 4 that reads, quote, The clerk shall use the procedure described in this section when processing the absentee ballots during the designated times. This sentence says three things. That processing ballots can only occur between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. So, reiterating paragraph 1, that it's not a warden processing these ballots like if it were on election day it's the municipal clerk, and then that the procedure to follow is the one described in this section. Okay, well, there is no procedure described in this section. 
They've given some time frame parameters and notification guidelines that would apply only to processing ballots before Election Day. And paragraph 5 and 6 go into when it's okay and not okay to count them. And then how to secure already processed ballots until Election Day. So we know what to do before they're processed, and we know what happens after they're processed. But there's nothing in this section that describes the actual procedure for processing absentee ballots. I don't understand what paragraph 4 is pointing to here. Now the other two options I went over, those both had specific instructions within their sections for an actual processing procedure. The default option of processing them after the polls close, there's multiple paragraphs in that section talking about specific steps required to process absentee ballots, who's opening them, how to decide which ones to reject, the responsibility of the election clerks. I mean, this entire section, it doesn't even mention election clerks, let alone the presence of a warden. And then the sections dealing with processing them while the polls are open, it explicitly says that the processing procedure is exactly the same as if processing them after the polls close. But this section, this one dealing with voting before election day, section 760B, it specifically says to follow the procedures outlined with this section, section 760B. But the problem is that there is no procedure described in this section. There's nothing. Now, one possible answer and I don't know that I'm convinced it would make sense, can be found under Section 858A. This section of Title 21A specifically lays out guidelines on using voting tabulators and voting machines to count absentee ballots. Quote, The procedure for processing absentee ballots or use with electronic voting systems is the same as for processing absentee ballots as provided in Section 759. So what this means is that if the municipality is using a tabulator, it has to follow the process laid out in Section 759. Section 759, you may recall, describes the process for counting them after the polls close and subsequently while the polls are open. It's exactly the reference I think is missing under the section dealing with processing before Election Day. This line, or something like it, is lacking under Section 760B, something that explicitly says do it like you do in section 759. But the counter-argument would be that it doesn't matter that there is no reference to it under the section dealing with processing ballots before election day, because section 858A applies to any time a tabulator is being used. So if you're using a tabulator either before, during, or after the election day, then according to section 858A, they should follow the process described under section 759. But I'm not sure that makes sense. Mainly, I'm still hung up on it saying to follow the process in that section. It could just as easily say, follow the process from Section 858A, or better yet, Section 759. Instead, it refers to itself despite not having a defined process. If nothing else, I'd argue that the wording here leaves things open to interpretation, something that isn't necessarily good to have within a state's election laws. Okay, well, that wraps up what I got on Maine's absentee voting process. There are a couple of things the municipal clerk and registrar still have to take care of before the municipalities officially completes their role within Maine's election process. The registrar, within 45 days after an election, needs to have updated voting histories for the municipality's voters, 
updating which residents voted and which did not, if they voted absentee or not, add in any day of registrations or party enrollment changes, and again, that's all information that ends up in the voter file of every registered Mainer and can be purchased by any campaign or get out the vote organization. And then the municipal clerk is pretty much responsible for everything else. The tally sheet copies, along with copies of the election clerk's tally sheets or the tabulator's tally tape that the warden gives the municipal clerk, assuming they're different people, but regardless, the municipal clerk takes all that stuff and has two days to compile it into the municipality's official election report and have it delivered to the Secretary of State's office. And something else I think is worth noting here is that if for some reason the municipal clerk, in looking over the final tallies done by the warden, feels like the warden made a mistake, the municipal clerk has the legal authority to, quote, correct any errors in either the tabulating or recording of the count that are obvious based on the tally sheets or copies of the tally tapes available to the clerk. The clerk may not change the totals recorded on the precinct return prepared by the warden, but shall make the correction to the attested copy with a notation of the basis for the correction, end quote. So if they think the warden made a calculating error, the municipal clerk has the legal authority to make the correction on the official results turned over to the Secretary of State's office as long as they make a note of it. And then, in addition to all of that, the municipal clerks are also responsible for keeping a number of the election materials secure for months, sometimes years at a time. They're the ones responsible for making sure that those boxes holding all the used and unused ballots are kept secure, as well as that sealed package with the incoming voting list from that day. I think they keep the ballots for about two years, but they remain sealed unless there's some sort of recount. But incoming voting lists from election day, they keep those for five years and are allowed to unseal it five days following the election when the incoming voting list becomes available for public inspection. Other things the clerk is responsible for keeping secure and available for public inspection? All of those opened absentee ballot envelopes and any still sealed but rejected absentee ballot envelopes. Those all become public records a few days following the election as well. Along with a complete list the clerk was responsible for compiling that has the name of everyone that requested an absentee ballot or was sent an absentee ballot. The clerk is also responsible for getting that absentee voter info submitted to the statewide absentee voter list. Copies of both the statewide and municipal absentee voter list can be viewed by request and free of charge. The big difference between the two is that the statewide absentee voter list uses a voter ID number instead of a name and residence address, but when you're looking at a specific municipal absentee voter list, you'd actually get to see the name and residence of the absentee voters. Alright, I guess that's it for today. I covered a lot, but I don't think I could have done it justice splitting it up. We learned that Maine's municipal clerks hold an incredible amount of power over Maine's election process. In addition to being designated as an election supervisor by the legislature, they are permitted to carry out anything a warden or registrar does, has the authority to appoint election clerks, is even permitted to alter election results if their final count doesn't match the warden's final count. They're responsible for securing and maintaining the tabulators, are permitted to wear the hat of a municipal clerk, of a warden, and of a registrar all at the same time and is even legally permitted to process absentee ballots before election day while doing so. They're responsible for keeping ballots secure before and after the election, as well as during if they are filling the role of warden, 
including if they were processed before Election Day, securing either stacks of completed absentee ballots that have already had their envelopes and affidavits removed, just waiting to be counted, or a USB drive containing the results of those absentee ballots. And they're also responsible for conducting the municipality's absentee voting process, that they're free to distribute absentee ballot applications as they see fit, and that there's no cap on the number they may provide any third party. And speaking of the absentee ballot process, we also now know that a third party is technically allowed to possess more than five absentee ballots at any one time if they're willing to help voters across multiple municipalities. We now know that while it's not expressly allowed for a municipal clerk to contact a voter that has made a mistake on their returned absentee ballot envelope, it's also not expressly forbidden. We figured out that signature verification in Maine is effectively non-existent. And we also figured out that there's no penalty for making copies of completed ballots. And there was something else. All right, our voter records. For just a couple thousand dollars, any campaign or get-out-the-vote organization can get a year subscription to the voter records of every registered voter in the state of Maine. And then use that to send canvassers and mailers out to specific voters like unenrolled voters, or voters on the inactive list, voters more likely to vote absentee. Another thing that comes to mind is some of the party enrollment data I covered back in episode 3. That one looked at voter enrollment data, trying to figure out where the surge in registered Democrats came from, and subsequently Biden's massive voter turnout this past November. If I could get my hands on some of the data that the get-out-the-vote groups get, then we could really get a better picture on where those 48,000 new Democrats came from. Like, how many of them were considered inactive until the November election? Or how many of those 48,000 new Democrats voted absentee this past November? Another thing we'd be able to see is what happened to those 5,600 Libertarians when the party lost recognition. Did a bunch of them really join the Democrat party like the data suggests? And then, one of the problems I hit in episode 4 the one where I look at the potential pool of voters that came out for either Biden or Trump in 2020, but didn't vote for either Clinton or Trump in 2016. And one of the largest groups within that pool of voters were voters that had registered to vote sometime between 2016 and 2020, combined with voters that were registered to vote in 2016, but didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election. Well, the data available within those voter files would allow me to split that group up. Something else I started thinking about pulling this episode together was that for someone that had concerns about the absentee voting process in their municipality, well, Title 21A allows several opportunities for members of the public to inspect not just absentee ballot envelopes and affidavits, which are considered public records, available for review both before they're processed and for up to two years after the election, but also voter lists and final tally sheets and tally tapes as well. Well, I think it would be interesting to effectively do what I've done here, but instead cover chronologically the opportunities available for members of the public to inspect and observe the election process. I think that would be a fun one to do too. And I'm pretty curious to dig into the state's absentee ballot numbers and see how it correlates with some of the data I've covered in earlier episodes, especially now that I know more about the process itself. I think it will help in trying to eventually put those numbers into perspective. All that aside, the direction going forward with this topic from here will look like this. 
Today, we covered the election day process and absentee voting at the municipal level. The next part will focus on the role the Secretary of State plays in Maine's election process, as well as a look at the tabulators Maine uses, what we know about them, and their history in Maine. And it's really a shame I don't have more time to put into this, but this is what I'm going to do. I've got three documents that I'm going to put up as a separate post on the website. These three documents I plan to draw heavily from when I come back to this. They are a complete list of which main towns used a DS-200 this past November and which hand counted. I'll also post a copy of the RFP that stands for Request for Proposal. The RFP of the state of Maine issued way back in 2010 or 2011 for ballot tabulators. And then I'll also put up the lease agreement Maine entered into with ES&S for the tabulators Maine currently uses today. So I'll make those available on the website, themainpolis.com, for anyone that wants to take a look. And if you're curious about the DS200s and want to do more research on your own, the second part of episode 4 explains some of the known issues, so I'll put a link to the show notes for that episode as well up. Alright, but for the next episode... We'll be back on the New England Clean Energy Connect Project Part 3, looking at the history of Hydro-Quebec and clean energy's environmental impact. Alright, that's all I got. Thanks for listening.